Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet John Russell, author of All the Right Circles, a book set in the 1990s in Raleigh, North Carolina, with action in Charlotte, too, that explores themes of race, class, and money in a changing world of relations between men and women, society, business, and politics across three generations. Diana Speckler, novelist and New York Times columnist, says, All the Right Circles is reminiscent of an Updike novel, had Updike been Southern. It reads like the best gossip, the kind relayed in hushed voices at the fanciest cocktail parties in North Carolina. It's a compulsively readable, gorgeously written exploration of intimacy and of power. We start the show with John reading from the opening pages of the book, where we learn about the significance of the highway that makes a circle out of protagonist Jack Callahan's hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. A highway makes a circle around my hometown, dividing it neatly in two. The old families of Raleigh own drafty mansions inside the Beltline, where they walk from house to house and socialize. Everyone else lives outside the Beltline, a sprawling tract filled with folks who drive around in cars and don't know each other. My mother has always liked living out there and being alone in the crowd, but I got tired of it growing up. When I came back from New York, I took a law job and moved downtown. Then Print and I got married. She's from one of the old families. Over time, I've done a personal makeover to fit in with her friends, sporting snappy casual clothes and practicing easy chit-chat. I even acquired a drafty mansion. Still, when I'm questioning whether it's worth doing all I have to do to live inside the Beltline, I take a drive and think about the simpler, early years while meandering around the cul-de-sacs of my youth. Different people now settle in the former outback. Successful types who hustle into town for jobs with a blue-chip outfit. They don't care much for the old ways, and they cheerfully mow down everything to start over preferring new construction. Invariably, folks call the new people Yankees, whether they come from Boston or Mumbai. 
All goes well for them at first. They're taken in by the mild weather, the chit-chat. But sooner or later, when they've crossed over the belt line, they'll make a mistake. Laugh too loud, sound a horn in traffic, and meet a glance, cold as a ready blade, that says, you don't belong. You may not even exist. I can still see my mother's college roommate, Mrs. Burnside, scowling at new people years ago while I loaded her groceries in the Harris Teeter parking lot. She was a nice lady, even though she scowled a lot. The blonde, chipper family at whom she scowled, Yankees for sure, had both laughed loudly and beeped. On top of that, they drove off in a BMW wagon, much too showy then. I wheeled Mrs. Burnside's cart towards a proper Buick. Bless their hearts, she said, gathering her cardigan against the chill of history. They're like those pointy-eared people. My nephew watches them on the Star Trek show. That would be the Vulcans, ma'am. She smiled grimly and fished in her purse for a quarter. A quarter was real money back in the 70s. Now, in 1997, we're lucky quarters still work in the payphone. Eventually, old people and new clashed over, well, everything. German automobiles versus American-made, bratwurst versus barbecue, but mostly over how to divide up the money progress brought to town. The new people had the progress on their side, so they won. Change triumphed in the grinding roar of construction cranes and the dispensing of banknotes all around. After a long struggle, suddenly, before our eyes, the Raleigh old-timers knew, inside the belt line and out, turned into an all-American, suburban, brand-name place. Most everyone adapted, but a few survivors, like Mrs. Burnside, wandered around traumatized. They couldn't get over it. One day they went into the Harris Teeter to get pimento cheese, and when they came out, their odd old little city had become like everywhere else. Hey listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O. FM. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. John Russell is the author of All the Right Circles, as well as the prize-winning novel Favorite Sons, 
which the New York Times heralded as a novel of ideas sweeping grandly through more than 40 years of Southern history. He's worked as a book editor in the publishing industry, as a lawyer, and as a consultant for businesses and government. An active lecturer and essayist, John has spoken on policy and literary topics in venues as varied as London, Basel, Prague, San Paulo, and Beijing, as well as across the United States. His writing has appeared in Southern Cultures, the Los Angeles Times, the Raleigh News, and Observer, and other periodicals. A native of Greensboro, North Carolina, John was born in 1954, the same year as Hurricane Hazel and Brown versus Board of Education, each of which, he says, caused major disturbance. He was educated in the public schools of that city, the University of North Carolina, Columbia University, and Harvard Law School. He and his wife have six children and a grandson and divide their time between North Carolina and Mexico. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Landis. I, I really appreciate it. I'm an admirer of your podcast and delighted to be on. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's nice to have you here, and we're doing this thing remotely for, uh, for our respective uh, safety here, and uh, hopefully we'll be beyond COVID at some point, but uh, who knows, right? Right, right. So, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, now, one of the things, John, I, I glossed over uh, a little bit in your bio was the fact that uh, most of your wage earning years were spent uh, as an attorney, That's right? That's absolutely true. Yeah, and so, yeah, and so uh, I guess one of the questions I have is how did uh, you know this uh, lawyer turn novelist? Not only that, corporate lawyer for many years uh, turn novelist, turn two novels. Uh, how, how does that happen, John? I'm, I guess I would start with the reverse. I've always thought of myself as a writer. So I would probably say, how does a writer actually do the law? I mean, writing books is the only thing I've ever really wanted to do. Um, I found myself, I guess, in my mid-20s in New York City in the middle of what we used to call the Reagan recession, looking at the economic world as something that wasn't my friend. And so the law seemed to be a good way to make a living with the talents I have, which are basically talking and writing and just kind of being with people because I like the mix of the human comedy and the law is actually really good about that. I decided on corporate law basically because I'm scared of the courtroom. It's a very frightening thing. I mean, I admire you because you... you practiced in the courtroom, but all those judges and they sit up there and they're in robes and it just made me nervous. I mean, I, I really liked the more, um, I don't know, civilized environment of the boardroom, I think. I tell people I, I went in my 50s from wanting to experience conflict to uh, instead enjoying writing about conflict more. <laughs> here, here. That's a great changeover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's do this. Let's talk about, uh, you, you were in the publishing world a little bit before you went to be a lawyer. You told me that uh, you'd actually done some editing work in uh, one of the publishing houses and had to work and got to work with some uh, really famous authors. Just give us a taste of that. Sure. I, I worked at a Houghton Mifflin Company in a really golden age of the, the end of publishing as we knew it. And I, I was at grad school at Columbia and um, just wanted out of the academic world. So I got a job as an editorial secretary I was typing and filing and doing all these things that you do with this man named John Galassi, who's still in the business. He's the editor-in-chief now of Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. And so he had a great list of writers. And uh, then I worked with Nan Talese, who also is still in the business. And I got to be sort of a junior editor, and I worked with writers like 
I don't know, Pat Conroy, Richard Ford, Richard Price, a little bit with Louis Auchincloss. When I say worked with, I got them coffee a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you did tell me you worked on the Lords of Discipline. I did. Right? They, they, because I was a Southern guy, they thought I could actually deal with Pat Conroy at a level which included a lot of drinking and some work on a manuscript. You know, you talk about identity politics today, but back in New York in like the 70s or so, there was a lot of, you're Southern, you would understand this, and we can't, you can deal with Pat on a different level, which mainly involved drinking beer. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I did work with Pat. He was a great guy and, you know, terrific guy. It's just a big loss that he's gone. Yeah, so let, let's uh, let's jump right into all the right circles here. Uh, this opening read I really enjoyed. You, you start right off, you take the gloves off right away, you throw in Yankees, you throw in the, the change, you talk about how, you know, one day she goes into Harris Teeter and another day she comes out and her little old city has changed and become like everywhere else. Uh, and that's kind of what's happened to the South, right? I mean, uh, the big shiny buildings, the movement, uh, the banking center to, to our area of the woods, and uh, it's just uh, it's something we've had to deal I with. I think that's right? true. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm so fortunate to be able to write about social change in that way because it's really in the wheelhouse of novels of a traditional sort. I mean, middle-class people moving to cities and, as you say, working in shiny buildings is stuff that novelists have written about in one way or another since, you know, Jane Austen was talking about social mobility and Charles Dickens. And we're just lucky. I mean, North Carolina provides us with a full menu of country come to town, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we got a bunch of writers in North Carolina. Well, well let's talk about Raleigh. I, uh, you know, my in-laws live uh, in, in, in Raleigh. Uh, they, they live outside the Beltline. So this, this was kind of, I, I was kind of laughing when I, when I read the OTB and the, the ITB. And uh, I, I didn't realize, you know, and, and of course you're a novelist and you're, you're poking a little fun here, but, uh, you know, this idea that maybe there was a, you know, this side of the tracks and the other side of the tracks when it came to the Beltline. Is that a thing in Raleigh? Oh, it's a real that? thing. I mean, I, and, and I'm not, I have another advantage in that I'm not a native of Raleigh. I grew up in Greensboro, which actually is sort of more like Charlotte than it is like Raleigh in terms of its view of the world. I mean, yes, I'm fully convinced that the people who controlled the highway money built the Beltline in order to keep people out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, unapologetically. I mean, I think they did it, you know, yeah, that they did it to keep people yeah. out. Yeah. Well, this, this, what's really fun when, when you read this book, you know, you recognize uh, places if you're from North Carolina, uh, you know, if you've been to Raleigh, you recognize some of the places. Now you've changed some of the names. You've given the newspaper a different name, the Criterion, right? right? Um, and you've, uh, but you use some of the same <clears throat> sites, uh, and and fiscal buildings, uh, you might have written. You probably gave an, another name to uh, Saint Mary, uh, the the the, the two year school there that sits in Raleigh, right? Uh, 
change that. But if you're looking closely, you can sort of figure out that uh, these are real places and real people occupy them. Well, you have to strike, you're right. And you have to strike a balance about that. I mean, people who read this, who know the territory are going to have a different reaction to it. The publisher, the publisher is in Los Angeles, uh, Rare Bird Books, uh, this young man named Tyson Cornell, a wonderful young, I'll just give him a shout out, a great young publishing uh, guy in his mid-30s, Californian to the core. And when he read it, he, sa- he had a different reaction. He said, I said, Tyson, why do you like this book? Why do you want to publish it? He said, quote, it's so exotic, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and all the people living in Raleigh think we're exotic. Yeah. He- <laughs> and remember, he's a millennial guy. He, he said, nobody out here will actually believe that the stuff you wrote about happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that true sometimes when you write fiction and people go, that can't possibly be true. You know, that, that can't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but, yeah. Um, but I was going to say, you, just, you do have to strike a balance. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's only one Raleigh News Observer. It's a very powerful institution. You can't right. dance around and say you're not writing about that. You know, <laughs> right. right. Uh, well, let's talk about OTB and ITB okay. a second. Your protagonist, uh, Jack uh, Callahan, uh, uh, he and his bohemian author mother, uh, Nora, live outside the Beltline. They're transplants. They come from the north, uh, um, from New York, I think. And you have f- some fun playing with that. And they're essentially outsiders uh, in a strange land. Um, their religion's different. They change that too. Um, they're trying to fit in maybe, or, um, you know, talk about Jack and Nora for just a second. Well, I stumbled into this, but it really is part of the dynamic of the book is that, um, Jack and Nora are joined at the hip, are joined at the hip as mother and son, but they're very different. Nora enjoys being an outsider, living outside the belt line where nobody knows her business. She doesn't want anybody to know what she's doing. She's actually writing a multi-volume biography of E.M. Forster, which which she doesn't want to explain to anybody. And Jack is just this young guy who's very gregarious, and he he likes going to school and playing sports and stuff, and he wants to fit in. He wants to be one of the guys. And so you have kind of a reversal of the classic mother-son, the sensitive young artist boy who's rebelling against the conventional mother, like D.H. Lawrence might write in Sons and Lovers. Here you have this bohemian, wide open, no boundaries, um, early feminist woman who's given birth to this kid who wants to join the country club. Yeah, and who doesn't tell his, her son the truth about why she brought him to, <laughs> to North Carolina, <laughs> right. which he doesn't find out about until right. later in the book. Uh, and uh, but, but as far as the place goes, your epigraph here, you, you, you use uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, somewhere is better than anywhere. And uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, Jack was feeling that a little bit, you know, um, throughout the book. Is that sort of a theme for the book here? Somewhere is better than anywhere? That's a, a wonderful, yes. I, to me, I, that was haunting to me when I first read that by Flannery O'Connor. I mean, that's like, that's kind of like my homage to the Southern literature school, you know? I mean, what the great power behind the classic mid-20th century writers like Flannery O'Connor was, this place is so powerful and so awful in many ways 
but it's better to have this identity than to be nobody and be, be from nowhere. Yeah. So a lot of the tension about the New South or what we call that is you have people who don't really have that attachment to place and are kind of happy being from nowhere. And that's just not what any Southern person, white or black or of any race, is really going to want, you know. So anyway, yes, you, you, I do like that Flannery O'Connor quote, and I think Jack does believe that. Somewhere is better than anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about some of the other characters here during the show, but uh, you got a little short read that speaks to uh, Jack and Nora uh, early in the book, uh, sort of highlights the mother-son aspect of this, and it kind of talks about Jack's early years and his development. So uh, anytime you're ready, just uh, pick okay. it up. Okay. I call this the peanut butter section because Jack becomes very embarrassed with his mother's behavior, and he's maybe 11 or 12 here. Nora grew attached to the belt line. That's the highway around. She drove in us in full circles around it to find St. Elizabeth's where she worked. She burned gas to reach a faraway exit for the Winn-Dixie, which had better coupons than the Harris Teeter. She wandered in curlicues to the War Memorial Auditorium where we saw Rogers and Hammerstein musicals, which she thought tastefully challenged the white supremacy of the day, and to the piano lessons she made me take so I could learn to be a cultured person. One weekend, she drove to the neighborhood where the fanciest people inside the Beltline lived, the ones with the lockjaw drawl she imitated from parent-teacher conferences. She turned on a street with big oak trees and gabled houses set back on grassy hills with sprinklers that hissed and rotated in arcs of water. I was scared and mad at her which was sometimes the same feeling. We weren't supposed to be there, and she didn't care. Finally, she cut the headlights and the engine and rolled the woody wagon silently to stop in front of an old stone house big as a city block. We sat in the dark and ate a peanut butter and banana sandwich and watched the family inside like it was the Ed Sullivan Show. Are these people happy? She whispered. Their daughter has so many nice objects. I nodded and tried not to think about a police car roaring up, lights blazing and us getting arrested. Instead, back in the realm of nice objects, I focused on the ankle-high, star-stamped Chuck Taylor basketball shoes I'd asked for last week. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is not to have nice objects. She broke off a piece of sandwich for me. How do we get happy, little man? This is the question for our research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Nora is researching throughout the book. She's researching all different kinds of things, lifestyles, uh, you know, who she's going to have an affair with, uh, where she's going to try to push her son uh, and, and have him do um, she is kind of out there through the book and, uh, you know, you, we kind of keep circling back to her. She's kind of in the background, you know, Jack's front and center a lot through the book, but, but he never seems to be able to escape her gaze or, uh, her approval or her past. Right. And, and actually she, um, well, it's, they love each other and that's hard for him because she's such a pain and, <laughs> and, 
And actually, you know, not to be a spoiler, I, it's fair to say that she basically uh, drinks herself into uh, rehab. They didn't call it that back in the 90s. She went off to Harmony Hall. <laughs> right. And, right. And, 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 he, and uh, with all the other stuff he has to deal with, he has to take care of her. And he's irritated by that. But he loves her. I mean, that's, you know. Well, you've got some undercurrents and some plots here and some twists and turns we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, but but more than that, I think you, you do have a character-driven novel. You've got Jack, you've got Nora. But then, uh, you know, wife Prynne, this is Jack's wife, uh, she sort of just wanted to have a regular life in Raleigh. And she's sort of grown up uh, looking for that and kind of had enough of what Jack's been up to. And uh, uh, they've got a child, Robin, and Robin's having to be back and forth between the parents. So you've got that going on. Um, and then we have the law firm, right? And uh, you spent many years in law firms and you know what that's like. I assume you had fun, you know playing with the law firm dynamics. Well, let's say there was, I had plenty of material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Hugh Sims, uh, he is Jack's senior partner, mentor early in the book. Uh, he has been the partner who's representing the Criterion, the, the local newspaper, powerful local newspaper, and probably brought in a lot of money for the for the firm over the years. But uh, things are changing for him, right? Uh, you know, computers and uh Banks have come to town, and they generate more income for the firm than maybe the newspaper. And uh, he wants to pass this on to his uh, protege, Jack. And uh, about the time the book opens, there's a real problem with the Criterion, right? And Jack's got to come to to save the day. Well, the Criterion—that's the the crushing action of the beginning of the book, which is the Criterion comes under. Uh, a hostile a hostile takeover attempt from a Wall Street uh, guy named Victor Broman. And it's unclear why he wants the Criterion, um, but he's hell-bent to have it. And the so Jack basically, Jack's a really good lawyer. I had, I had fun making Jack a lot better lawyer than I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had he had kind of a neat uh, trick that he used early in the book to get uh, get him out of that early jam, the inciting incident, so to speak, of the of the book. And uh, and but then you know that uh, the the Wall Street Raiders are not going to give up; they're going to come back, and and Jack's going to maybe be a little less have a little less up his sleeve, perhaps uh, in the coming days to save the Criterion. And what you build into that is the fact that Hugh Sims is connected to. Wardy Forrest, who's the owner of the Criterion, and they go way back. Families go, newspaper goes way back, the Sims go way back. Um, we're going to talk about that a little more in the show, but uh, you've kind of built this uh, relationship, and that's probably true in a lot of southern towns, right, that uh, the people that are running the institutions, you know, they, they have families that date back many generations. Well, I think in the, I think in specific, I mean, Raleigh and as a city and North Carolina as a place really began to take off around the turn of the 20th century in the 1890s and families who got connected in business at that time, you know, some of them have stayed connected for a century. Um, and I think here what you have is that the Sims family, it's, it's known to Jack that the Sims family for three generations has been lawyers to the Forrest family who own the Criterion. 
he doesn't know the origins of their their connection. He doesn't. Right. And we're going to talk about yeah. that later in the show, but because uh, it, it deals with the political undercurrent in North Carolina's history. Um, but he was also uh, sort of a kingmaker and a queenmaker when it comes to politics, right? And so something Jack didn't really want to be involved with, but that's Hugh and his family, right? Yes, the Sims family, uh, there was talk of a Sims machine. His connection with the Forrest family gave him the ability to put candidates in front of the newspaper, and the newspaper's endorsement was the most important single thing you could have um, So the as a candidate. So the reality was, if you were friends with Hugh Sims, you, well, you needed to be friends with Hugh Sims if you wanted to be a Democrat and get anywhere for decades. Yeah, so one more character I'm going to introduce here with you is uh, Elaine. She's a strong female lawyer who works with Jack and uh, saves him from trouble from time to time. Um, but she's battling sort of the uh, the male dominant culture in the big firm. And uh, Jack's kind of trying to look after her, but she's looking after him too, because you've got to read here in just a minute. Jack seems to have a problem keeping his uh, pants on, right? Right. I mean, s sex for Jack is kind of an escape from the various traps that he has. And the, in the book... You, in this, among the characters, Jack is always joking with his partners that some people want money and some people want sex. He didn't care about money so much, but as you say, he, he has a wandering eye, as my mother used to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and more than, more than just that, as you reveal uh, in the book, uh, Elaine, uh, who is sort of with him all the way when it comes to the corporate work they do together, um, she has to be the one when he gets in trouble here to uh, set him straight. And she's done it so many times, she's really about to give up on him. But, uh, you know, this next scene that you're going to read about uh, involves situations which, um, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, probably were much more rampant, uh, you know, in the corporate world and in law firms too, hopefully than they are today because now we have the Me Too movement. But, uh this illustrates, I think this read illustrates a little bit more stupidity than over this for that sex kind of thing. Uh, Jack, uh, you know, gets involved with the secretary, which is a dumb thing to do. Right. right. And she um, she's going to be fired by the firm. Like I said, he didn't say, you know, if you don't have sex with me, you're not going to get to keep this job. But he, he sort of stumbled into this relationship. He should have known better. Uh, it went too long. He tries to break it off. Suddenly she's upset. Well, they move her to another place. Well, okay, already you know as a lawyer, I know as a lawyer, this is leading to to problem because she's not going to make it in the firm. And when she doesn't, it's going to be all a direct result of you know his stupid act uh, early on. So this read is, I think, uh, when Jack gets caught. Right. I'll just start with it. Seeking a dignified end to Terry Lynn's firing day, I sandwiched myself between two couriers and tried to leave the office unobserved, but it was no use. The Channel 5 news crew spotted us by the service entrance and gave chase. Mr. Callahan, Mr. Callahan, did you fire Terry Lynn Tucker because she stopped having sex with you? Brenda Bobolink, who until that moment had been a disembodied presence reading the evening news, 
fairly spit the words. Her cameraman fixed me with a light so bright that I threw up my arm. What? What? Th that's preposterous. Did you assault Miss Tucker in North Wilkesboro? Oh, God, no. Do you think sexual harassment is a major problem at Butler and Sims? One of the couriers shoved me into a running car, and we hightailed it through yellow lights down Wilmington Street out of downtown toward the club. Another news crew sat waiting by the entrance, and so I told the couriers to turn around and drive back to the office. I had nowhere else to go. I went back to my desk. It was only 8 o'clock, and there were plenty of people still at work. All around me, I felt the firm's comforting hum, the churning Xerox machine, the click, click, click of an overtime secretary's selectric. You looked really special on TV, Jack, Elaine said, materializing coolly from the hall as I sat squinting at the diplomas and ornately gilded law licenses on my wall. I, I feel so ashamed. I mean, I haven't done anything wrong. I mean, legally. You took a perp walk, Jack. That's what it feels like. If you were a black man, you'd be in jail. Well, lucky me then. You bet you are. Here's the deal. Thank your smooth-talking friend, Wardy Forrest, for this. I called Ballard and told him I'd get total control of the case. As for you, you'll do exactly what I say. No press of any kind unless I dial it in. We'll forget about your screen test this afternoon. Thank you. Stop thanking me. Do you understand the instructions? Yes. I've got a room for you at the Radisson under a fake name. Do I have to? Won't Brenda Bobolink to track you down? What's the name? She smiled. Mr. Jack Zipper. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, Jack's getting his uh, comeuppance there, and uh, you got a little scene later where he has to go to court and deal with the ramifications of this, and uh, he does try to end up doing the right thing, I think, uh, uh, by the woman he went to the race with in North Wilkesboro. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's Jack, and he's, you know, that's sort of like, like you said, he is, uh, that's his escape. He's not he's not doing drugs, he, but he is having consensual sex with a lot of women, and uh, it's not his wife, and that creates a, a problem as well. Um, so let's do this. Um, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, not, not long, uh, listeners, we're going to um, come right back, and uh, when we do, we're going to dive into uh, some other uh, aspects of this book. We're going to we're going to move to Charlotte, uh, where we're going to meet the CEO of a Maribank. Uh, kind of sounds familiar to a bank uh, we've heard of. And uh, then we're going to do the Right and Life segment. And then we're going to dive into some uh, uh, maybe little known North, North Carolina history, but becoming more uh, known these days about uh, sort of what jump started Jim Crow uh, in this area and. Uh, it's built into the uh, to this book, and we're going to have some conversation about that. So, listeners, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. 
They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and... Uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm, I'm back uh, with uh, John Russell. He's the author of All the Right Circles. We're having a good time talking about this book that's uh, set in North Carolina, set in Raleigh, and also in the Charlotte area where... We're now moving to Charlotte in the book because uh, Jack uh, Callahan, who's the protagonist of this book, uh, he is uh, trying to defend the Criterion from a hostile takeover, and things aren't looking good, are they, uh, John? No, I mean, Jack, uh, as you alluded to earlier, had sort of a couple of tricks up his sleeve to keep the Raiders away, but the point is the the uh, they owe money, I mean, the bank owes money to the Raiders and they are in a strong position to take the bank. So he has to go to the Amerabank to see if they will bail out uh, his client, the, um, the newspaper. So the Criterion owes money, time's running out, and uh, Jack's kind of going to Charlotte to connect with uh, the chairman of Amerabank to see if uh, they can get a little help. That's right. And he walks into this scene, and the scene is kind of it's going to set us up as to sort of Charlotte and the Mirabank chairman, he's talking to, to a group. So uh, anytime sure. you're ready. Um, the title of this chapter is Banks Either Grow or Die. 
I cited a Maribank's pointy tower to locate World Crossroads, the auditorium where the great man would soon speak. Charlotte people liked to build things and name them World This or That, to the amusement of the old crowd in Raleigh, but I thought it was cool. I mean, if you could name a local stock car race the World 600 and turn NASCAR into a zillion-dollar business, what's to laugh about? Setting out on foot, I walked through the Amerabank lobby, marble pointing the eye and spirit to the financial heavens. Hugh Sims once told me that if you wanted to understand Griffiths, you had to get real Presbyterian. Dalton Griffiths thinks God is always revealing a path that leads upward to greater greatness for himself and the bank, Hugh whispered before a board meeting once. I got the feeling that more than once, Hugh had put Griffith's piety to use, much like Churchill played onward Christian soldiers on the decks of His Majesty's destroyers to pump up Roosevelt for the Lindleys. Sure enough, WPA-like murals swept ever upward, portraying that old-time Presbyterian destiny, crops and cloth turned to money, farmers and workers marching toward heaven, all to bless the purposeful mass of blue and gray clad bankers crowding ahead. I had to ask how to get to the World Crossroads Auditorium. A security guard in sunglasses pointed to a billboard at the entrance across a cobbled pedestrian mall. Once in, a bespectacled lady event official handed over a name tag and hustled me to a seat. The great man himself, Dalton Griffiths, sat by the podium head bowed. Then he rose. Banks either grow or die, Griffiths began, addressing the darkened hole. His suit, a paler gray than regulation, his figure tie, a darker blue, a crispness to his button-down Oxford shirt that suggested sensible laundering. He held half-reading glasses that clacked for emphasis against the podium, his shadow intruding on the bullet points of a slideshow. Gazelles in the heart of Africa wake up knowing they must outrun the fastest lion to survive. The fastest lion knows he must outrun a gazelle to eat. We outrun our competitors. If it's our destiny to eat one along the way, so be it. An aide scurried, trying to scroll through the slides. Griffiths weighed him off. Forget my speech, gentlemen. Nothing has changed in banking in the 36 years I've been at it. You've still got three risks, credit risk, interest rate risk, and liquidity risk. You make money $1 at a time. You only lend money to men who pay it back. But this isn't banking as usual, gentlemen. This is a battle for the future. In 1930, Chase Manhattan Bank had $3 billion, and the whole city of Charlotte we had $150 million. Now we've got $681 billion and Chase is gone, eaten. Gazelles and lions! His fist came down hard on the podium and a colored graphic showing projected growth rates in mid-Atlantic metro areas wobbled like jelly. <laughs> That's great. So... Are those true facts, the dollar, essentially? Did you look that up, or is it kind of a close approximation? I think I looked it up, actually. I, I think yeah. that that was, 
I mean, I think I did look it up. That's about right. Yeah. So I, I love you. You know, the banks either grow or die. I suppose for all the law firms that, uh, and you were in them and I was in them, that chased the banks, uh, that was probably a motto that was circulating that led to all the mergers of the law firms as well, right? Sure. And I mean, I think that was a unique business environment that no one actually predicted. None of us lawyers innocently, we could never have imagined that suddenly, you know, Security National Bank or North Carolina National Bank or, you know, all the iterations would become Bank of America. That was in the a genius of, uh, of Hugh McCall and his circle to do all of that, so... And you also hint a little bit here in this reading to the uh, to the competitive spirit between Raleigh and Charlotte, you know, to the <laughs> to the amusement of the old Raleigh crowd. You know, anything that Charlotte can screw up, Raleigh's going to be happy about, maybe. Well, I, you know, there, there there used to be a lot of that. I mean, there used to be a lot. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there, there was a uh, a sense of the great state of Mecklenburg and what was it doing, and the old Raleigh crowd felt back when the Democrats controlled everything, that politically they had the situation in hand. But then suddenly this, these banks and this huge business success story was right down the road. So I think there's less of that now because, frankly, people don't care, I don't think, as much, you know. You, you sent Jack to, to Charlotte to fix a problem, and he has to deal with the, uh, the head of the bank. And after hearing that speech, he, uh, he knows he's in for for a difficult conversation, which we're not going to reveal here, but uh, that's, that's part of the fun of the book. <laughs> part of the fun of the book. Because if, uh, if he can't get the chairman on board with the problem, uh, a chairman who's pretty much about, you know, if you owe your debts, pay them back, uh, then he's, he's not going to be able to save the criterion. Uh, let's do this a minute, uh, John. We'll talk about writing life before we get into the last part of the discussion here. Um, you, um, We talked about the fact you've been a corporate lawyer you, for many years and whether you started as a writer and you had to do corporate to pay the bills, uh, you know, what did you do um, after you learned all that corporate writing to kind of untrain yourself uh, to, to, to get back to writing, <laughs> writing something people would like to read? You That's know? a great question. I mean, one thing that legal, the, the legal life taught me was that there was really no such thing as a writing block. I mean, if you had to deliver a document, a 20-page brief, you know, day after tomorrow, nobody wanted to listen to how you couldn't quite get your head around the second paragraph. <laughs> right. There is no, on deadline, there is no writer's block for lawyers. And, and, and the problem is lawyers don't sometimes edit like they should. And that's why judges have to put, time, you know, page limits on, on everything on their briefs. Yeah, right? but I, I thought the right, I thought that the, the Writing fiction, I, when I would go home and I'd start writing fiction, it was a relief because I could make it up. I mean, it, I, didn't have to, I didn't have to be uh, factual. And right. at work, it, you know, you, you, asked me quite, you asked me quite naturally, are those numbers correct? And <laughs> they actually are because I, ha I have the yeah. habit of doing that. But to me, writing fiction was a great relief. But I have to say, I mean, I liked writing. I liked good legal writing, good persuasive legal writing to me is an art form, and I enjoyed doing it. I kind of miss it a little bit. I mean, because a difference between legal writing and writing fiction is that you, when you write a good 
legal persuasive argument, you're actually changing somebody's behavior, bending them to do something that they may not necessarily think about doing before they read your piece. If you're writing fiction, people very rarely read your book and say, I'm going to change my life. You know, sometimes they do. Maybe if you're Tolstoy, you read War and Peace and changes your life. But nobody reading All the Right Circles is going to go, I'm going to change the way I do things. But if I write a 20-page paper to a, a corporation that says you need to change and do this, I mean, sometimes they do it. So it's the power of the legal writing to immediately affect behavior I always liked. That's, in, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, so your first book, you were writing that book while you're still practicing law, right. correct? So it took a little longer to write? It took a little longer. It took, actually, both of these books have taken about 10 years. The, the problem with the second book was that I wrote about three different failed manuscripts that just were no good before I wrote this one. So I was always writing, but the I did. I published uh, Favorite Sons when I was uh, I'd been practicing law for seven or eight years, and it came out. And I had a chance, I think, basically to to leave the law and then become a full time writer. But I chose not to do that because I'm really a very conservative person, and I had mouths to feed, and so that wasn't going to work. Um, so I kept writing, but. It, 10 years on that one, 10 years on all the right circles, and about three failed projects in between. Right. They say that you can't succeed without a little failure, so uh, so that's good. Let's do a couple of fill in the, the blanks. The first time I felt like I could call myself a writer was when? Oh, uh, at age 11, I fell in love with the movie The Best Years of Our Lives that I got to watch on dialing for dollars on channel eight and i just started writing a story about how dad came home from world war ii i i was hooked i mean i thought that was you know i loved it the best money i ever spent as a writer was to purchase what oh um a small corona electric typewriter that i wrote my first novel on i actually gave it to one of my kids um but i i Think fondly on it. That's great. That's great. A helpful influence on me as a writer was, could be a person or a thing. Lewis Rubin was my editor for Favorite Sons. And I think an example of how you lived a literary life. And I, I, miss, I miss Lewis. I went to his gravesite in Charleston last year. And... Uh, <clears throat> If I'm a, a detective and I'm trying to find John Russell's muse, where am I going to go to find your muse? Um, you might try my house in Raleigh with uh, my wife, Kelly. Um, she's terrific and is very supportive. And she reads so well, you know. And she tells me it's absolutely no, no. She If she wants to tell me that I'm, Full of it, she'll just tell me I'm full of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's the kind of critic right. you need, right? Uh, what, what's one of your more memorable events uh, as a writer? Oh, gosh. Actually, one of the fun things that I remember fondly was I'd, in the first book, I actually did the um, Queens College um, 
lunch speech that they do every year. And I had such a good time with that. Lee Smith was also there and she's been very supportive. I should give a shout out to her. She blurbed this book. She's very supportive of everyone, of me in particular, and she and I did that speech and I love that. Um, and uh, Charlotte actually is a very, very good town for me. I'm, I, I may have as many readers in Charlotte as anywhere. In fact, I probably have more. Uh, I don't know why that is, except Charlotte's a, a good town for for reading and supporting writers. So a couple of uh, questions related to uh, your process. Are you kind of old school? Do you use uh, ink pen and paper, or do you keyboard? Both. I, I start out with writing in longhand. I have these notebooks, and I, to me, writing is a physical thing. It's like painting or sculpting, and so I write... It's it's not efficient. I mean, but I, I I write longhand and then either I dictate or type it out to get to the next draft. Do you uh, plan your books out with an outline, or you kind of free flow? It sounds like with the second book that didn't work three times, you might have been kind of trying out different things. I'm I'm now an outline guy. Um, I started out not being, and it and I've you know, written two fairly presentable books over my, a lifetime. So that's not, that's, I want to accelerate that production. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't have another 30 years to do this. So, right. so I, I'm an outline guy now. I, I, yeah, that's what I do. All right, good. So uh, final question in the writing life. Uh, why do you write, John? I can't not do it. I mean, it, it would actually, I've tried not to do it and I've become a very unhappy person. You've actually tried? I've not tried to not to do it because what's the, what's the point? You know, what, when I was writing three bad manuscripts and having like a hundred agents tell me that my career was over and, you know, going to conferences and, you know, sitting by myself in the corner, I mean... I said, who needs this? But that... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you stuck with it because uh, this is a fun book that you've written. And let's get back into it a little bit. Uh, one of the things you did with the book, uh, uh, you, you kind of include this plot line. And we won't give away, you know, the ending, but we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what surfaces uh, in the book here before your final read. Uh, we find out that, uh, you know, there's a connection between some of the characters and this uh, horrendous event that occurred in 1898 uh, in Wilmington, it's sometimes been called a riot incorrectly um, because, in fact, it was a coup and it was a takeover by the whites of pretty much a properly elected group of black aldermen and civic leaders that were, uh, you know, running Wilmington at the time. And I guess my question is, we'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, what... What caused you to want to write about that and put it in this put it in this book? I I had begun thinking about this, the Wilmington massacre or the coup d'état. Those are the two things I call it. Since about I was seventeen years old, I, I was fortunate in Greensboro growing up during the period of integration to have an African American teacher who taught me um, North Carolina history and. She didn't really go by the textbook at the time. She had a mimeograph machine. Remember mimeographs? And yep. she she yep. would 
she would print out all this stuff about the 1890s. And it wasn't that people who were teaching history lied about all that. They just ignored it. You skipped, you know, you learned about the Civil War and a little bit about Reconstruction and how bad that was. And then pretty soon you were at World War I. But she focused on the 1890s and taught us about Wilmington. And I thought everybody knew that. And then I went to Chapel Hill as a senior in high school, and I was at this history department thing, and I sat next to the author of the definitive textbook, and by way of making conversation, I had a little bit of attitude in those days, hair down to my shoulders and McGovern stickers and everything. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, Professor, why don't you tell the truth about the 1890s in your textbook? which he greeted with a smile. I think he had teenage children my age, and he kind of looked at me and said, Mr. Russell, I shall so enjoy having you in my classes. <laughs> but but it, it caused quite a stir. I mean, I, but I just, the graduate student who was taking me around said, why'd you say that to him? And I said, well, you know, I had my old attitude on, and I said, hey, man, why don't you say that to him? That's like your job, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know... But, but I, was, I was taken by the absolute intellectual bankruptcy of that. And it had sat with me for decades. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's really difficult to even think about this happening. I had Tom Hanchett, he's a local Charlotte historian on the show and, uh, in season six. And, and he, he wrote a book uh, called Sorting Out the New South City. And he talked about how Charlotte got to be segregated. And the, the interesting point was that Charlotte was salt and pepper in the uptown area until about the late 1890s and early 1900s. It, the separation of the races didn't occur in the Civil War or earlier. It occurred primarily because of people, politics, and the decisions they made, as he talks about it, following the kind of acts that happened here. And and just so our listeners know, you, you know it's this fusion movement, right? So we get the fusionists to get together with the uh, Republicans at the time, a different Republicans, and the and the white uh, blue collar workers and the and the African Americans create a voting block and elect a Republican governor, and the Democrats who'd run everything they couldn't take that, right? They couldn't take it, and everything would have been different. Just think about think about how much would have changed if, in fact, the Democrats of the period instead of trying to impose Jim Crow and disenfranchise blacks, if they just said, oh, we lost a couple of elections, now we'll win one, we'll compete. If you had a, a Democratic Party that simply competed and, and left black male suffrage alone, um, cities like Charlotte, Wilmington, Wilmington was bigger than Charlotte in 1896. It was the biggest city in the state. And it was uh, close to 50-50 black, white, and there was an integrated government, a very powerful black middle class. Uh, it was a place where ambitious black people were coming to live. And it overwhelmed the sensibilities of the old guard, they, the whites. They just couldn't take it. Like, um, but what would have been different if they had, if they just sat back and said, Okay, we lost in 1896, let's win in 1898, and did what, what people in a democracy do. I'm haunted by that. 
Yeah, and there was a Gatling gun involved, which you bring into the story. And the interesting thing you do in the story is that you take these uh, these present-day characters, Sims, who's the lawyer and, and the politician maker, and uh, Wardy Forrest, who owns the Criterion, whose family is generations and generations of owning this newspaper. Uh, they both know the story because, in fact, the newspapers, from my, my understanding of the story, they were kind of stirring things up at the time. They were taking the position of the white supremacist because, you know, who was, you know, who was helping to, to, to pay for the advertising and run the newspaper? The newspapers were actually helping create this problem, were they not? Well, an interesting fact on that, the News and Observer, it was absolutely a propagandizing force for the white supremacists in ways that are shocking when you go back and look at the, what they wrote and what they published. I read a, an account of this, which goes back to what you were talking about, the money. 20% of the revenues of the News and Observer in, 1890, in, eight, in the 1890s came from the state printing contract, which was awarded by the legislature if the Democrats were in control to the News and Observer and if the Republicans were in control to a Republican newspaper. <laughs> so, so the people who owned the News and Observer were looking at if they lost, they were looking at 20% of their revenues going away. That was one thing. And the other thing was there were young people, the, the family known the News and Observer and the made alliances with Furnifold Simmons, who was this young guy from, I think, Shelby, and they all made, a, and Charles Acock, who was from Goldsboro, they were all in their 30s, and they wanted to run things. And the way they could do it was by instigating this revolution in Wilmington, and they found a, an old guy who was the figurehead, Alfred Moore Waddell, who took the rap for them all. But he was proud of it. He said, you know, I, white supremacy is the way to go. Let's segregate everything. We'll eliminate the race problem. It's totally backwards. It's absolutely wrong. And it probably set Charlotte back decades. It set Greensboro back. It set Wilmington back. Wilmington probably has never recovered from the social and economic destruction of Jim Crow. Yeah, and part of the fake news, if you want to call if you want to use that term, um, and apply it to this is that uh, those monuments you see uh, that stand on the side of the road that uh, probably some state historical society pays for, uh, there's one of those standing in Wilmington that talks about the riots of 1898 as if the people were rioting and needed to be put down, you know, in that process. And uh, so th that's, that was part of the propaganda, you know. I think that's part of the energy, and this is something I tell to audiences when I'm not in North Carolina, because everybody in North Carolina knows it. Part of the energy around something like the Silent Sam controversy at Chapel Hill is actually because those statues were put up, in part, okay, because the white supremacists wanted to create a story that detracted from their criminality. And it, mm, that's interesting. So, so we got, uh, you know, Hugh Sims, and somewhere early in the book, uh, there's a scene that happens at a country club, and Jack doesn't understand what the members, they're using some language he doesn't understand, and he, and he goes and talks to Hugh about it, and Hugh closes the door and says, well, you know, Big Hugh, he rode with Waddell. 
And Jack's like, you know, what are you talking about? And so Jack has to go kind of figure out who Waddell was, who you mentioned, who was one of the ringleaders of the coup at the time. And so you understand early in the book that there's this connection, uh, Big Hugh being, I guess, uh, the grandfather, right, right, of Hugh Sims in this book. And so who would have been uh, running things back in the late 1800s. And so there's a scene here we're going to finish the, the episode with today. Uh, there's a judge, African-American judge, who was a friend of Jackson Law School. She's running for office, and she needs Jack's help. And uh, she's sort of uh, swallowing her pride a bit because she wants to have a fundraiser at Big Hugh's, well, not Big Hugh, but Hugh Sims' house. But she knows the history, right? And so there's a scene where she has to sort of go ask Jack, uh, you know, would you kind of help spearhead this and do it? And she's probably feeling a bit conflicted about that. Right. Uh, her name is Kay Jonna Blunt. And more than know about it, her family was actually one of the leading African-American families who was chased out of town at gunpoint. And they settled in Durham. And they've spent several generations clawing their way back. And she's now the, the hope of the family. She's the party wants her to run for attorney general. But ironically, she has to go ask the man who was part of the group that, the, whose grandfather was part of the group that ran her family out to help. And that, and Jack, and she and Jack were in law school together, and that's how they have the connection. So, Yeah, and this is a short read, so um, anytime you're ready, pick it up. This is Jack speaking. What would your grandfather, Reverend Blunt, say about asking Hugh Sims for a favor? Kajana bowed her head. Clearly, she'd thought about it. My grandfather always said, life is for the living. That's you and me, Jack. What a great answer, I thought. This campaign was going to be fun. Okay, Kajana, we'll put together the deal. I'll work it through Mary. Mary? Hugh's wife. She runs the political fundraisers. She'll probably be at the Raleigh Women's Club today when you give your stump speech. Walk up, introduce yourself, and say, hey, I'll call her later. Perfect, Jack. Thank you. Glad to be on the Kajana team. One more thing, Jack. There's more? I want you to introduce me at the fundraiser. What? You don't want that. There are better people. What about Jack? You crack me up sometimes. There are no better people. You're Jack Callahan, Butler and Sims' partner, defending the criterion in the fight of its life. Over coffee, you snapped your fingers, and I get a fundraiser at the home of the most powerful Democrat in the state. You make it sound like a bigger deal than it is. Jack, old friend, face facts. You move in all the right circles. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I wanted, to, I wanted to end there because it ties back to the title of the book, and uh, it does say a lot about Jack. that He doesn't, he doesn't really think it, but he does. He, he, he runs in the right circles, right? He's, he's in the big law firm. He's got the uh, connections. and uh, So you had a fun time writing this book? Once I figured it out, I had a fun time. It was hard to yeah. figure out, but once it, once it got going, I loved it. Yeah, it's great. That's great. Well, John, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about John, uh, images, uh, links to, to to him and his book and uh, his website and so forth. So, uh, 
John, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Rears Podcast. Landis, I'm, I'm delighted to have been on. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.